Good to see you. This evening, let's turn to the book of Zephaniah. If you'll turn back there with me to the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. We are quickly coming to the end of our series in the Minor Prophets. Tonight, we are in the book of Zephaniah. I was watching football today, this afternoon, then later on this evening, just as we're getting ready to come, just watching some of those things. You ever noticed in the end zone, holding up the scripture? I have never seen... Zephaniah with us. <laughs> When's the last time you've had your devotions and said, I cannot wait to turn to the book of Zephaniah? How many of you have memorized a scripture from the book of Zephaniah, other than the one that's on the screen? You have that one? No, okay. There's probably, which other verse? 317? Okay. There's, as you come to the end of Zephaniah, there's a few at the end of it that would be worthy of looking at and memorizing. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet and, his, and he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That one you've memorized? Okay. Zephaniah is probably not a well-known book to most of us. There is a theme that runs through it, a phrase. That's perhaps one of the most well-known expressions And this is the prophet that deals most with that expression on showing the two sides of it. And that expression is the what? The day of the? The day of the Lord. What do we mean? What does the day of the Lord, that phrase mean? What is the day of the Lord? Someone? The day of the Lord, Sunday. Day of the Lord in prophecy is? The Lord's Day, Sunday. Day of the Lord in prophecy is? When the Lord returns. Okay, that's one side of the coin. So you have Lord's Day. Day of the Lord is the Old Testament prophetic expression. When the Lord returns, the day of the Lord. What's the other side? There's coming a day. It ties together a little bit with what we just heard. The judgment, the wrath. So oftentimes when you heard the expression day of the Lord... You look at it as the Lord's return, a time of judgment, the Lord will have his day. Okay, if I could use that expression, and that implies judgment. How long is the day of the Lord? It's a controversial when you get into that. How long is it? We heard it the day he returns, so it could be a day. The day of the Lord may be a thousand Seven years, if I put it that way, all right? Which means then the day of the Lord is an expression that takes in, and you're going to see it introduced tonight because Zephaniah is preaching in the city of Jerusalem. Zephaniah is the great grandson of the king Hezekiah. And then there will be three generations later, Zephaniah will come on the scene, which means he's raised in the city of Jerusalem. And as you talk about Zephaniah as a prophet preaching, he'll be preaching at the time of Jeremiah the prophet as well. And Jeremiah is going to bring another expression in Jeremiah 30 verse 7 to Judah, and he's going to call it Jacob's trouble. Okay? And Jacob's trouble is another expression for what? The latter part of the seven year tribulation period. First three and a half years will be peace for Israel, not peace around the world. There will be wars and rumors of wars, etc. And then there's that breaking of the covenant. Tribulation starts not with the rapture, but with the what? Signing of the covenant, an antichrist, who people don't recognize as an antichrist till midway through his seven-year reign, as it were. And then at that point, he breaks his peace covenant with Israel. And for the Jews, the remnant who's still alive, it begins three and a half years of the worst Time they've ever experienced in their history so bad that Jeremiah calls it what then? Jacob's trouble. 
Zephaniah is going to introduce that by talking about there are troubles, extreme trouble, judgment coming upon the Jewish people in the future. And so he's referring to a period of judgment. We know it as the tribulation period. But also in the day of the Lord is going to come great blessing. That's going to begin with the what? The day the Lord returns. And it'll continue then for a millennia. So the day of the Lord is really more than a day. It's about a thousand and seven years. All right. And we get the robust, the full blessing. Turn the coin over. Judgment or judgment followed by blessing. Known as the day of the Lord. All right. And that's one of those, again, expressions that gets difficult because people say, well, day of the Lord is judgment. But then I hear day of the Lord is blessing. It's all. When the day he will judge and then that'll be blessing to follow. All right, with that in mind, let's look into the book of Zephaniah this evening. We're going to handle it differently than we've done any of the other prophets. Zephaniah is going to be the prophet. It's just a small book, three chapters. As I said, it's probably not that familiar to us because many of the verses, um, they're so powerfully messaged towards the nation Judah that they seem to just escape so much of the church life. From 640 to 625, the prophet Zephaniah, whose name means hidden or protected by Jehovah. Interesting name, protected by Jehovah or hidden, because he's one of those godly men that may have been hidden or something to that effect during some very, very ugly times in Israel's history. But he's going to minister to Judah. As you remember, 722, the northern tribes are carried away. We are now long after that, 640 to 625. The theme that runs through this whole book is the coming of the day of the Lord. And it's found in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord. As you read in verse 7, is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Be silent before the Lord your God. The day of the Lord is near. That's sort of the, one of the theme verses of this chapter. It's worth underlining as well. Very powerful. As well as verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress. And then we'll see a little later in chapter 3, it's marked as a day of blessing as well. What's important as you read through the book of Zephaniah is to understand some background. But let me just tell you a little bit, and then we're going to turn back to some of those passages this evening. A little bit of the history, the wickedest king that had ever ruled in Israel's history was a man named Manasseh. He ruled for 55 years. He was wicked. When he died, his son Ammon, A-M-O-N, would reign. And then would come a grandson on the throne, a young boy by the name of Josiah, who will begin his rule as a young boy, coming when he's just eight years old, and by the time he's a teenager, 16, starting to initiate great reforms in the nation. The kingdom at this time of Judah is spiritually bankrupt due to really corrupt leadership. You'll read in the passage with me in a little bit later, I'll read it, where the judges were crooked. The scripture says that the prophets were liars and the priests were lawbreakers. So it's a wicked time, and we'll see that in chapter 3 as we read verses 1 through 4. As a result, the citizens of the nation had become complacent. Verse 12 of chapter 1, It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and will punish men who are stagnant in their spirits, who say in their hearts, The Lord will do nor good or evil. He's not going to judge anything. God just isn't that involved with what we are doing. And so it's a time of spiritual complacency. The result, by the time we get to the year 625, and that's when Zephaniah is written, the corruption at the top, because people who are blind to their plight, sick and didn't even know it, weren't even aware of what's going on. So let me read a little bit of this book, if you'll follow along with me. 
For uh, just a moment, I'll introduce it, and then we're going to read some things. As we see, the purpose of Zephaniah, written by Zephaniah himself, whose titled or names mean protected by Jehovah, hidden, within the book of the Twelve, under the purpose, Zephaniah closes out the subunit. There's three books, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. These three sort of form a subunit within the Twelve, which focuses on the word judgment. All three of them spoke about judgment. But Zephaniah was raised up by God to assist this godly young king, Josiah, in his attempt to bring Judah back to God. This message of Zephaniah revealed, however, it's too late. Too late. Zephaniah's message of judgment, like Jeremiah, he's a contemporary, appears directed at disobedient Jerusalem. There's no mention of Josiah's short-lived reforms in Zephaniah. Judgment was coming, though some individuals still would be saved. And as I said, the key phrase is that day of the Lord. This is the prophet that writes more about it being judgment as well as blessing. Okay? Now, as you notice the historical occasion, during this period, Judah suffered the nation from social injustice, immorality, idolatry that had started under Manasseh and then his son Ammon. So as we look at Josiah, this young king, his grandpa Manasseh. Now, before him, his great-grandfather was Hezekiah, which would make both Zephaniah and Zephaniah great-grandchildren of the king Hezekiah. And so they would uh, both have been descendants from Hezekiah. But Josiah's dad was Ammon and his grandpa was Manasseh. And so as you read on the sheet then, these messages occurred before and during the reign of good king Josiah who started a six-year reformation in 622. He was killed in battle in 609, way too young. Now, as I said, a descendant of King Hezekiah, he probably had access to the court. Let me read chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So you see his descendants, he's a descendant of this line. More is written about his heritage and parentage then than any of the other prophets. As we said, he ministered in Judah during the early years of Josiah, during the time also of Jeremiah. Because of the invasion of wandering nomads into Judah, the prophets spoke to the citizens of a coming later judgment. Zephaniah's prophecy is concerned totally with the future, and underline the phrase, the day of the Lord, in which God's judgment will be upon Israel and the Gentile nations. Zephaniah emphasizes the day of the Lord more than any of the other prophets. He portrays the period to be one of horrible judgment followed by a time of great blessing upon the remnant of faithful Jews. In other words, then it's a period of approximately 1,007 years, the tribulation period, especially the last half, as well as then the millennial period, okay? Zephaniah clearly ties the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, to two quite different aspects, judgment, blessing. The coming day will be a time of judgment on rebellious Judah, as well as the surrounding haughty nations. So back here, God's going to be speaking about the tribulation period already being a time of judgment on the Gentiles as well. All right? Yet it will also be a time of blessing on the faithful remnant of Judah, along with those Gentiles from among the nations who come to worship Yahweh. Thus... And you might want to underline this. The day of the Lord is linked to judgment as to restoration, both for Judah and the nations. And this, then, is the book in which God is preparing a people for him. If you turn now over to the backside, I'm going to read some of the book of Zephaniah along with you. And you'll see that the first two chapters deal with the tribulation, period. There's sort of a, you're going to see judgment now. And that's going to be when Babylon comes through, just to show you that when I tell you judgment is coming, I'm serious. And I'm going to bring some right away on this generation. So that's for the people living in Judah. But I'm bringing it to this people, meaning the Jews in general, because they've wandered away from me and they're a hard-hearted people. So when I tell you judgment is coming, I'm going to bring it in your day and I'm bringing it in the future. And then to the Gentile nations that have just 
treated both my people and my name horrifically, I will bring judgment. I'll judge Moab and the nations around, but I'm going to judge them greater in the future. All of that is found in chapters 1 and 2. And it's the tribulation period in its robust judgment of God. But because I'm a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, and I've promised this people, I've promised Abraham that I would bless him and his descendants, there's coming a day of blessing, the millennial kingdom. That's in chapter 3. Beginning in chapter 1, then, follow along as I read some of this. And as you look into this book with me, you'll see as we begin, God's judgment is going to be universal, sweeping. I will completely, verse 2, remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That sounds pretty powerful as he brings then judgment over the nations. And it, as he then talks about it, because of the indifference of peop- the people, especially Judah. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests among the uh, priests and those who bow down in the housetops to the hosts of heaven, that's to the false gods. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. And back in the days of Manasseh, they were offering human sacrifices into these gods. And those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated His guests. Let me read just a little bit further. Then it will come about in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments, and I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold. On that day, verse 10 declares the Lord, there will be a sound of cry and crashing from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants. And it will come about, verse 12, at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men because they say God's not going to do anything. It'll be a time of judgment. Verse 15, it's going to be a day of wrath. A day of trouble. And you might want to put next to verse 15, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Jeremiah picks up this expression and calls it then Jacob's trouble. A day of trouble and distress, a day of desecration and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust. That is an expression that if you were to read and look in the other prophecies of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, you would see then what you're talking about here then is the the tribulation period, which brings then that kind of destruction. You could see then as you look in chapter 2, all of chapter 2 then deals with judgment against the nations. And so this would be comparable then to in the future what's known then as the bowl judgments found in the book of Revelation. Okay? And so these would be the bowl judgments. Gather yourselves together, yes, nation, O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And now then He unfolds this Gentile judgment against Gaza. These were Philistine cities of Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and then against the Carathites, and then he'll go against the Philistines, and he'll talk about then their judgment. And then he'll talk, verse 12, against the Ethiopians, and then he'll march on down as we... And the Ethiopians were the ones who by the 7th century B.C., had overrun and were controlling Egypt. So it's a judgment against them. And then when we come to chapter 3, what you'll see then, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the tyrannical city. Her princes, verse 3, within her are roaring lions. Verse 4, her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Verse 4, her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. In other words... 
all through Judah, at all levels of leadership, was corruption. But then, as we look in verses 8 and following, God then says, I am a covenant-keeping God, and there is another side to the coin of the day of the Lord. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured. Verse 12, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Chapter 3, 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong, tell no lies, no deceit in the tongue. They will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The Lord of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy, and he will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. Verse 20, at that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So it's a book that was written to the deal with the sins that the people were living in. The priests, the prophets, the princes, the leaders of the people had forsaken God. Now, that's pretty serious because that means in that day, the preachers in the time of Josiah the king, when Zephaniah stood up to proclaim this, all of them, the princes, the priests, and the prophets were corrupt, meaning there was no word from God except this prophet preaching some of the other minor prophets. What happens when you're driving down the highway and you're moving along with traffic and suddenly you come across, um, you see a dragnet or you see the, by that I mean several cars, or you see the radar set up. What do you do? What? slow down, check the speedometer, sort of take an inventory of what am I doing, how fast am I going, right? Hit the brakes and hope that you're not the first car in line is what most of us do, right? What do you do when you hear a warning like this? Well, it would take a tender-hearted person to respond and say, whoa, we need to take our feet off the gas. We're a little bit out of control spiritually here. And we need to apply some breaks to what we are doing. That's exactly what happens in the life of a young king. His grandpa was the worst king in all Israel's history. His dad was so corrupt that his servants and others killed him. And so this young boy now is brought to the throne to be a king. He hears this prophecy about what's going to happen. And because he is known as a tender-hearted king, he repents. He starts now to turn the nation, does what he can to arrest the evil that's going on. His name is Josiah. It caused someone then to take notice. And what I want to do tonight, different than any of the others, because as you read these prophets, what should it do in our life? As you read what's going on, it ought to cause us, as we just sort of run through life at high speed, take our feet off the gas for a moment and look down and say, hey, am I, am I doing what I ought to be doing? Would you go back with me for a moment to 2 Chronicles 34? And when you, at the beginning of the book of Zephaniah, you ought to write somewhere there at the, the beginning of this, you ought to write there 2 Chronicles 34 because that's the context for this book. Or 2 Kings 23. 
But we're going to turn to Chronicles. They parallel each other. 2 Chronicles 34 or 2 Kings 23. It was this king in that context, Josiah, who hears the message of Zephaniah and takes heart, and it causes a real change both in his life and in the nation's life. I want to read a couple of things here. Josiah was the 16th king of Judah, and here's what one writer says, the southern kingdom which remained in the land after the exile of 722. The prophecies under the name of Zephaniah are placed in his reign. Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, had restored Yahweh's worship. The reform, however, was short-lived because his son Manasseh brought back forbidden practices in a big way, 2 Kings 21. And Manasseh's son Ammon, 2 Kings 21, 19 through 26, did nothing to stop the situation. It was only in the course of Josiah's reign around 621 B.C. that Yahwehism, Jehovah worship was again officially restored and the pagan practices were finally forbidden. And so the nation, when they get Zephaniah's prophecy, are worshiping pagan pagan gods and idols. And the people say, well, God hasn't done anything to us and he's not going to do anything to me. And that happens to you and to me. It happens to preachers. A dear friend of mine over the years, or I'd been watching his ministry, pastoring a huge church in the Midwest. I just heard last week and then learned more about it this week and, and was asked to leave his ministry. It was over financial matters that he had misappropriated funds. I'm sure something happened to him that happens to people all the time. I'm the only Christian who works in this company. We need to be salt and light, shine brilliantly, be pungent where we work and where we live. And since I'm the only Christian here, um, God needs me in this place. Surely he'll overlook some of my indiscretions. He needs me in this point. I'm the king I'm leading this nation. God needs me in this position. He'll overlook that sin of adultery, David must have thought. But be sure you're what? Sin will find you out. And we sometimes just grow complacent with the idea. And we actually, we can make some very persuasive excuses in our own minds. The impact I'm having, it would bring more harm to the Lord's name if my sin was exposed. And so God won't do that to his holy name and we think we can cover it up. No, God doesn't think in those categories like you and I do. His name is holy. And sometimes even honor is brought to him when even those who serve him, their sin is exposed. I.e., be it preacher, be it king. All right? And that's what happens back in Chronicles. That account goes on and on and on. I want you to see, as we look in 2 Chronicles 34, the effect of Zephaniah's warning. It caused someone to take notice and listen to God to turn back, and that was this young king Josiah. Zephaniah's message then about a complacent people, a corrupt people, had a profound impact on this young king who heard this challenge and what happened. This is his response. Imagine the young king hearing this challenge and the impact on his young life. And this is the response. First of all, as you notice with me, he himself now is touched deep in the heart and he himself will seek the Lord. Notice with me as we look in this passage then in this episode of Zephaniah's message. He sought the Lord. I'm going to read as we look in chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles, these first three verses in just a moment. As we look there and you read these verses with me, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned only 31 years in Jerusalem. 
He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he was still a youth, 16 years old, he began to seek the God of his father, David, as a teenager. Now notice it required a tremendous amount of personal dedication and a desire for purity. Why? First of all, Josiah sought the Lord in spite of a shameful heritage. Those that came before him, his family. What was his background? As I mentioned it, the influence of a wicked grandfather, Manasseh, who had been the longest ruler in Israel's history. Manasseh ruled 55 years, grossly wicked and immoral. I call him, as I have listed in in the margins of my Bible, history's all-time reprobate. I'm going to go back to 2 Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 3, where it says, About Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, reigned 55 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. He will do the sins that the pagans had done who had lived in the land before Israel ever even came into the land. What did he do? Notice as you read on, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, served them. He built houses in the, altars in the house of the Lord, of which he said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The hosts of heaven where they would go up on the rooftops, etc. That's what Zephaniah was preaching against, and we read part of that. Jump on down to verse 6. What's the worst thing that God said you could do to your children? Offer them as a human sacrifice. Manasseh did that too. Verse 6. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Bin, well, we would call it the Hinnom Valley. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he put the carved image of an idol in the house of God. Verse 9, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid absolutely no attention. You know what's remarkable about this? That when he's finally in distress, if you notice in verse 13, the worst king in Israel's history who offered his sons as human sacrifices, one of them he cemented into the foundation of a city. Okay, when he was alive, put him into the foundation. That way then the city would be consecrated to that pagan god. So you take a living son and you pour him into the foundation of the city. This guy's really wicked. Verse 13. However, at one point, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed, he was moved. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, he was carried away. They put rings in his nose and they led him away, a conquering army. And he stayed that way in prison. The Assyrians did. And he prayed to God. God heard him. Verse 17. Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Manasseh had corrupted the people. But you know what? You're going to see Manasseh, probably see Manasseh in heaven. He became a believer at the end of his life. And God forgave him. There's only one way to describe a God like that. Mercy and grace. Amen? Hey, by the way, no matter what you've done. He can forgive us. Amen? And even to a believer, it's like, I don't know why he keeps on forgiving me, but he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. L-O-V-E. 
Does God love us? I asked God, how much do you love me? He stretched forth his hands and he said this much. It's called a cross. That's how much he loves you and me. All right? So we don't need to question it. You read an account like this, and this is one of those chapters that leaps off the pages and said, now that's a God of love. Amen? And so when you read about Manasseh, and then he has a son, and this is the father. Notice verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned a grand total of two years in Jerusalem. From 22 to 24, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done, and Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself. You're not going to see him in heaven. Before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him, put him to death. But the people of the land killed the conspirators against him. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. And Josiah is eight years old. And by 16, he's leading a reformation. So Josiah comes from that kind of a background. And so as a young man whose dad is murdered, his grandpa is a hideous sinner... And when he does get to see him late in life, he sees a man who's now bearing the marks of his sin because of the huge nose rings and whatnot from when he was taken captive. But now what you'll read as you look on, Josiah was eight years old. And notice we see Josiah sought the Lord in spite of the sinful circumstances around him. He is surrounded, advised and influenced by sinful people with sinful influences. And remember the conditions as described in by Zephaniah. Zephaniah said there are wicked leaders, corrupt advisors, complacent people. And so this young man, though, sought the Lord of his own accord as he listens to Zephaniah's prophecies proclaimed. The only good influence upon his life are a couple of godly prophets who proclaimed the truth. Zephaniah and Jeremiah, and it moved this young king. Why? I'm going to read a little bit about his life in just a moment, but verse 20, as you look in this chapter, verse 27, it says something. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against his inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. When he was 16 years old... He humbled himself before God, and God then used him as an instrument in his hand. Everyone, somewhere in life, sometime, each one of us has to look at everything around us, the cosmos, and say, I'm going to be different, and I'm going to walk with God. Josiah did that. So what did he do? Notice corporately, and I'll just spend five minutes here before we conclude. Turn back and repent Individually, Josiah did, and corporately, the nation under his leadership will be influenced. What can one person do? Can you make a difference? Can I make a difference? When you read what Josiah did, you say, I can be that person, and I want to be that person. And so as we pick up back in 34, we stopped reading in verse 3. Let's go back to the middle part of verse 3. Josiah influenced Judah. As a teen, he feared the wrath of God that he heard when Zephaniah was preaching. Therefore, he set out to influence those around him. Judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is at hand. And the results were threefold. First of all, there's a reformation of the nation. Let me read beginning in verse 3. And so, in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, the molten images. He tore down the altars of the Baals with his, his presence and the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped down, tore down the Asherim, the carved images, the molten images, ground it to powder, scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, purged Judah. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali and their surrounding ruins, he tore down the altars and beat the Asherim, those wooden poles, and ground it to dust. And the things that were used then in the prostitution worship, he destroyed everything. Committed himself then to loving God, practicing holiness, and obeying the Word of God. Notice what else he's going to do then. 
Everything that Zephaniah listed as sins in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, in this first part of Chronicles, you read that every one of the sins that Zephaniah listed, Josiah, as a 16-year-old, through the time he's in his early 20s, is going to deal with. So as he begins then, at the age of 20, he will deal with those sins that Zephaniah had listed. And that's the first part. Then what he does, notice verse 8. He starts a revival in the nation. Now in the 18th year of his reign, at the age of 26, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Now let's go back and rebuild the temple area. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected. Then they gave it into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord used it to repair and restore the house. So what he does is now he turns the nation from idolatry back to Jehovah with a place to worship. But it goes even further. You see something that's significant, and most people when they preach about Josiah focus on this. This is the great discovery he makes beginning in verse 14, the recovery of the word of God. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. I'm going to read something in a conclusion in just a moment. In other words, they find the what? The first what? Five books of the Bible. Do you know what that means? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy had been lost to a generation. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was, they were not read, not found, not around. They recover them now. Verse 15, Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan and the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king, this 26-year-old, and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. Verse 18, Shaphan then takes that, begins to read it. Notice now in verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Azahiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord, Zephaniah, which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had told went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem in Jerusalem. They spoke to her regarding this. And she said, this prophetess, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on the inhabitants because they have forsaken me, verse 25. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire, thus say to him, thus says the Lord, regarding the words, because your heart was tender and humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place, I have heard you and I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace so your eyes will not see all the evil. He's going to die prematurely at the age of 31. He'll get killed in battle. But you know what? I am sparing you from what I'm going to do to Jerusalem in 586 when they're carried off to the Babylonians because your heart was right toward me. I'm going to conclude by reading something that I came across in Alexander White, Bible Characters. Listen as I read, please. Josiah's father and grandfather were the worst two kings that had ever sold Israel into slavery. And Josiah inherited from his father and from his grandfather, Manasseh and Ammon, a name of shame 
an undermined throne, a divided and distracted kingdom, a national religion and a public worship debased and indeed bestialized, and overall a fearful looking for judgment to come. Skipping a few paragraphs. Zedadah, his mother, and with Jeremiah and Zephaniah for his ministers, both Manasseh, his grandfather, and Ammon, his father, taken together, did not succeed in corrupting and destroying this young king. Early in the days of his youth, Josiah began to seek after the God of David, his father. That is to say, however well a boy may have been brought up, however good a mother he may have had, and however efficient and faithful a minister, the time soon comes when every young man must seek his own God for himself. All the time, while Josiah still sought the Lord until he found him, the tenderness of his heart kept him safe and unspotted for all the corruptedness of the world around him. Josiah was only 20 years of age, White writes, when he set about a national reform of religion as radical and as complete as anything Martin Luther, John Calvin, or John Knox themselves ever undertook, but with this immense difference. Luther, Calvin, Knox had the whole word of God in their hands, both to inspire and to guide them and to support them in their tremendous task. But Josiah had not one single book or chapter or verse of the word of God in his heathen day. Just the prophecies from Zephaniah. The five books of Moses were as completely lost out of the whole land long before Josiah's day, as much so as if Moses had never lifted a pen. And thus it was that Josiah's Reformation had a creativeness and originality and enterprise and boldness about it, such that in all these respects it has completely eclipsed all subsequent Reformations and revivals, the greatest and the best. The truth is, the whole of that immense movement that resulted in the religious regeneration of Jerusalem and Judah in Josiah's day, it all sprang originally and immediately out of nothing else but Josiah's extraordinary tenderness toward God. Going a little further, this royal youth of but about 20 years old and the son, college age and the son and heir of Manasseh and Ammon having the intellectual boldness and spirit originality to take all his statesmanship, all his international politics, and all his righteous wars, as well as all his personal and household religion, all out of his own tender heart. For it was in the progress of that reformation and revival of religion with his own tender heart had alone dictated to him that the long-lost law of Moses was recovered. I'll read just a little further. Josiah was worthy, and God's recognition and reward of Josiah's worth came to Josiah at the very best moment, in the very best way. Humanly speaking, we should never have heard of the five books of Moses as we have heard of them, but for Josiah's tender heart. Had Josiah's heart not been tender toward the house of God, the temple would not have, let, would have been left in its ruin till the buried books of Moses would have been to this day the possession of the prey of the moles and the bats. Matthew Henry, he says, has written that you and I do well to tremble at the thought of how near we were to the total loss of Moses and his law. When the law of the Lord, as it was written in the newly dis disinterred books of Moses, was read for the first time to Josiah, and while Shaphan the scribe was still reading it, Josiah rose up and tore to pieces his royal robe. After having looked for it, I do not read that Shaphan the scribe rent his robe, nor Ahakim the priest of Shaphan, nor Hilkiah the priest, nor Achbor, nor Ahaziah the servant of Josiah, nor Huldah the prophetess. Josiah alone rent his robe as the law was read. Their hearts were not as tender as his. They had not come through so much from their youth up. 
Their families had not been as sinful. The finding of the law was no doubt a great event in sacred archaeology as well as in sacred letters to Shaphan and Hilkiah, but it did not come home to their hearts as it all came home to Josiah's heart. It was Moses speaking to him, but it was God himself now speaking to Josiah. It was an old book to them, but it was the word of the living God to him. He felt, such was his tender heart, that all he had attained to and all he had reformed and done up to that point was just nothing at all while still so much remained to do. And best of all, how unsatisfied and how tender-hearted he was with all he had done. And then White asked the question, Do you rend your heart every day when you hear and read the Word of God? Or are we too much like Hilkiah, Shaphan, and the others where we're used to it? This young man was moved. By the way, he goes on to close, Josiah's tender heart was the cause of his too early death. The narrative is obscure and perplexed and it lends itself to be read in more ways than one. But he says, as I read Josiah's end, it is something like this. The king's tender heart further led him out to do battle against the hereditary enemies of Israel and the oppressors and persecutors of the weak. In short, he went out against the sultan of Turkey of that day and the judge of all the earth and the god of battles for his own deep ends. Let that battle go against Josiah till Josiah said, Have me away, for I am wounded. Being unsuccessful, as we say, Josiah is almost universally blamed for letting his tender heart take up the sword to fight Israel's enemies. But Alexander White writes, But I, for one, am quite content to leave Josiah's tender-hearted statesmanship to the arbitrament of the last day. I, for one, will stand up at the last judgment, and I'm going to applaud Josiah and not wave an accusatory finger at him. And to that I say... Amen. Amen. He did a great thing when he heard the book of Zephaniah. So I started out by asking you, as I watched football today, have you ever seen anywhere Zephaniah 1-7, You've never seen Zephaniah ever quoted at a game, have you? And other than two people in here, nobody's memorized any verses out of Zephaniah. But you know what? That prophecy about the day of the Lord, a time of judgment coming and a time of blessing, changed a king, started to change a nation, and you and I are the benefit of it. Amen? A powerful book in its day. It tells us more about the coming day of the Lord than any other in the sense that it's a judgment and a blessing. And as you and I read it, it moved people in the past. It should still move us. Thank you for being with us. We move into my favorite of the minor prophets next week, the book of Haggai. Haggai will say, look at this temple that we've now built. Some of you remember the, in the past, and he's going to talk to them about, the, does the past seem more glorious than the present? Great challenges to you and me. Getting busy about the work of God. We'll talk about that next week. God bless you. We'll see you next week. <laughs> 